College football fans, and welcome to episode 146 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined, as always, by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, Cornhusker fans and college football fans. Yes, hello, hello. We are a father-son duo here to talk about college football by college football fans for college football fans. This is the first of our off-season podcast recording here in mid-February to go over uh, the Nebraska recruiting news. Uh, that we have been holding off on for a while, as well as uh, Matt Rule's full coaching staff, uh, and also some big national topics that have come up, such as conference realignment and uh, potential rule changes and things like that. So a lot to get to today. Yes. All right. But before we get into all that, we're going to stick with our tradition and open up a beverage. I've got one of these uh, sparkling ice drinks here, since I'm uh, trying to avoid beer for right now yes and i i am uh guilty of not being as diligent you at the weight loss efforts although i am drinking a light i'm i've gone with the basic miller light a fine pilsner beer all right here we go cheers yes because you opened yours before the podcast (laughs) i did i broke i broke rank and opened it too soon broke rank (laughs) i like that All right. So to start things off, um, we wanted to just quickly go over um, Matt Rule's full, complete staff. Now that we know that when we last did a podcast after the national championship game, it was already rumored on who his last two hires were going to be. And it turns out those rumors were correct. They were former um, coaches with him at the Panthers. Um, But now we have the full list. So we've got our offensive coordinator, Marcus Satterfield, defensive coordinator, Tony White. Special teams coordinator Ed Foley, running backs coach EJ Bartell, wide receivers coach Garrett McGuire, who's one of the newer ones, uh, tight ends coach Bob Wagger, offensive line coach Donovan Riola, defensive line coach Terrence Knighton, linebackers coach Rob Dvorak, who is the other new guy, and secondary coach Evan Cooper. So that's the full list. It actually sounds like a pretty good group when you when you list them off like that. Yeah. Now, this is interesting because um, and we'll be get into this with the recruiting discussions, you know, on some of our earlier podcasts, you had kind of raised some flags about um, him, you know, hiring a lot of people he's worked with in the past, you know, and a lot of quite a few of them are younger guys, especially for the uh, level of paycheck that he's been able to secure for his assistance and somewhat questioning that decision. But um one of the things that I have seen in terms of what the staff has done so far, which, you know, we only get a little bit of insight into, um, but they certainly did seem to hit the ground running in terms of that grind mindset and really traveling all over the place uh, to try to meet with different recruits, you know, already holding various coaching clinics within Nebraska, right? Reaching out to high schools locally and things of that nature. Um, so from that perspective and the work ethic perspective, I think he's got a good group. Uh, what would you say? I would 100% agree with you. That, that There's no doubt that he has hired a group of people that understand the work ethic and the expectation that he has set out. He's set the standard of, of what the work is going to be, and, and they all have clearly bought in. They uh, Almost every one of them, with the exception of a guy like Tony White, who's never never played with or never coached with, coach rule before but but the reality is is that 
these guys, for the most part, know what it's like to, to coach under Coach Matt Rule. And they know they're going to have to work hard. That's the expectation. Right. And it was interesting. Um, there was a, a podcast, actually, that Matt Rule went on, which is it's called the Bussin' with the Boys podcast. The hosts are Will Compton, a former Nebraska player, and uh, Taylor Lewan, who was a Michigan player. Right. Um, and they managed to get uh, Matt on the podcast. It was a solid, like, two-hour discussion, you know, and because it's, uh, you know, not a professional thing, right? It was more kind of casual. And, uh, you know, he said some interesting things there. And I think they brought up, you know, his coaching staff. And he mentioned basically, you know, I've hired some some kind of big-name guys, right? Some coordinators or coaches that uh, – that you know are supposed to be, you know, brilliant, you know, or have a lot of years of experience or whatever in the past. Uh, and then they show up and they don't put in those extra hours and they aren't, you know, as dedicated to your vision, you know, maybe as a, as a different guy. So it sounds like that was his main focus. That, that is correct. He, he understood that, you know, again, he's, he's all about development. And that's not just about developing players. It's also also about developing his coaches and developing his staff overall. And he has certainly uh, put a premium on are these people that I'm hiring uh, willing to put in the work that I expect so that we can get done what we want to get done. And uh, whatever they don't know because of, say, lack of experience, that they're going to be taught, right? I, either I'm going to teach them or other of my mature staff are going to teach them, right? So he's confident not only in himself, but in guys like Satterfield and Tony White to be able to train, you know, the guys underneath them to do what needs to be done. Right. And uh, certainly, like I mentioned, in terms of the Nebraska community and the local, you know, uh, talent and high school coaches and things like that, I've heard quotes to basically say to the effect of, you know, They've done more in a few months here under Matt Rule than uh, Scott Frost did in all five years that he was with the program in terms of reaching out to uh, local high schools and trying to talk to Nebraska local players and things of that nature. Yeah, I, exactly. We've read a lot of those kind of articles, and and that's where I'm always a little cautious at this point. You know, after five head coaches that have not produced the the desired result about, you know, um, drinking too much of the Kool-Aid, you know, you get a lot of these positive vibe articles every time you have a new coach. Right. But, uh, but the reality is, is that I, I think in this case, there's a little bit more meat on those bones. They really are doing it. The, the physical evidence is there. And so that's quite impressive. Uh, they've impressed me and I'm trying not, not to drink too much of the Kool-Aid, you know, <laughs> but, but it's, it's kind of hard because they, they really are making an awful lot of decisions that if I was in that situation, I would have done exactly the same thing. And I think it's important. I don't know if you were going to get into to salaries or not, but I know that, you know, uh, the salaries have obviously be an, been analyzed now that they've all become public information. You know, they got they got released to the public. And uh, even though he had, you know, a seven million dollar approximately um, uh, allocation for his coaching staff because he was hiring some guys who were younger. And let's be honest, some of those coaching hires are, weren't his first choice, right? Uh, I'm, I'm 95% certain that Mickey Joseph was going to be our wide receivers coach. 
and probably, you know, a, 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 some other title, right, uh, that would allow him to get paid. But bottom line is he was going to be the wide receivers coach and he was going to get paid a heck of a lot more than the guy we ended up with at wide receivers coach who's, you know, a 24-year-old coach who, who has spent a few years coaching uh, with Matt at, as an assistant at uh, Carolina, right? But otherwise right. has no background whatsoever it, with a couple of key exceptions. Uh, Garrett is his name, right? Um, um, but his dad is the head coach at Texas Tech and, and was his high school coach. So he grew up in a coach's family. He uh, was side by side with his dad, used to sleep uh, in a cot in his dad's office to, to be able to be with his dad during that time, you know, so that they would be able to bond or whatever. So this is a guy that eats, uh, drinks, and sleeps football since he was a child. Yes, uh, Garrett McGuire is the name. Garrett, yeah, Garrett McGuire. And so that's a, that's, that's a young coach who has no experience, in fact, has – uh, uh, at least one, if not two, wide receivers in his room are that that are going to be the same age as him, uh, or maybe even a couple of months older yeah. than him. <laughs> so I mean, that's that's an unusual circumstance, right? Especially for being a, 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 an assistant at a big time program like Nebraska. But you know what? He's not the guy I'm worried about, right? I think he's going to do just fine. It's pretty clear to me that they vetted his work ethic. And he's going to be one of those grinders. He's going to be one of those guys that's fully committed to, to being successful, right? Um, so right. I'm not worried right now about that. Um, I, I didn't see any particular news about the salaries. So what was the point you were going to well, there? So the, the salaries after Garrett McGuire's and Wager's were included, right, in the, all the ones we already knew, uh, the total uh, is actually a little below $6 million. So – so uh, he he left a million plus on the table uh, for his recruiting uh, pool, right? And he probably uh, asked and was allowed to utilize m- more of those dollars to expand his uh, behind the scenes staff, right? Okay. Now we we to- in total. I mean, you've got you've got ten head coaches and a head strength coach, but then behind those eleven guys. Uh, I think our staff now is upwards of 45 people total. So uh, 45 minus 11, you know, you've got 30, 34 other people that are part of Nebraska's staff between analysts and various recruiting uh, staff, personnel, um, general managers, you know, um, assistant to the head coach, all these different roles that Coach Rule has carved out for individual people to help uh, the machine, so to speak, be as effective and efficient as possible so that, so that he can get all the things done that he needs to get done in a day. Right, which I think makes a lot of sense in this new world of college football because we know that coaches like Nick Saban at Alabama have a way bigger support staff than that. Um, so Absolutely. we're just kind of catching up to the times there. Right, we're, we're, we're getting right. Now, now we are in the top three or so uh, in the Big Ten in terms of um, staff size, uh, which, which frankly, that's, if, if you want to, if you have an expectation that you're going to grow, you know, a, uh, a program into, you know, uh, competing for championships, then you dang well better give yourself the resources that the, the guys that are winning championships do. 
And so you better be uh, pretty darn close to what Ohio State's doing and what Michigan's doing, right? Those are programs that we need to emulate. And in this case, I think we finally have made that commitment to do that. Right. Um, transitioning from there, of course, we've got the news about uh, recruiting. We've had both signing periods have now passed. Um, so we know what our uh, 2023 class, class is generally looking like. And uh, I was looking at rivals earlier, um, and they ranked our uh, recruit class, our new 2023 class, uh, 25th, uh, 28 total players with five people that they rated as four stars included in that bunch. Um, and of course, that's not necessarily looking at the transfer portal, which is a whole other side of things uh, that we've been, uh, you know, kind of aggressively going after in this period as well. Um, so give me your general summation of how do you think Matt Rule and his staff have done in the uh, few months that they've had to assemble a recruiting class with a program that's been as down in the dumps as Nebraska? Well, I, I, you know, I, I mean, in terms of effort and, and trying to do everything they could to upgrade, you know, uh, their roster, I think I, I have to give them a solid uh, A or A minus, right? Like they, uh, they, they definitely swung and missed on some guys that we would have really, really benefited from, including a uh, young man, a uh, young man, a man who, uh, you know, was a three-year starter at Stanford and uh, had verbally committed to us. And then 24 hours later, changed his mind and ended up choosing to go to Oklahoma. You know, had that young man stayed committed to Nebraska and and followed through on his commitment, uh, that would have been huge for Nebraska. Huge. Because I think going into this season, well, right now, we have like 12 scholarship uh, offensive linemen. Typically, in the allocation of 85 scholarships, most, most schools are going to want to have 16 or maybe even 18. Some might even carry 18 offensive linemen. Okay, because that's five positions, right? So 18 isn't really that many. 16 isn't that many. That's basically a, a, a you know, a first team, second team, third team, right? Right. Uh, and you need you need three teams with injuries and, and maybe some red shirts and things of that nature. And our number of 12 includes, you know, uh, the fact that we have six freshman recruits in this recruiting class you were just talking about. Six of those guys are offensive linemen. So we, we really don't have very many scholarship-level offensive linemen. That's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that would be the criticism is that we went after uh, offensive linemen and to a, 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 a slightly lesser degree defensive linemen, and we, we, got, we had some success, especially at the rush end. But in terms of the big boys in the middle, you know, defensive tackle slash nose tackle, uh, we we didn't do as well as we would have hoped we could do, um, right? But but overall, uh, we collectively between the recruiting class of twenty eight and then like eleven or twelve portal guys, we ended up right around thirty nine or forty, I believe, is the total number of new additions to the staff or to the roster. That's huge. That's that's a massive swing or turnover, if you will, um, of players. And we're going to have a very different football team next year because of that. So overall, I give them a, a darn good grade for what the effort was and what the results were with the few exceptions. 
Right. I know specifically talking about the offensive line, uh, we did get a transfer from Georgia, uh, Jacob Hood, that people seem to uh, regard pretty well. Well, he was a very highly regarded kid, four-star coming out of high school. He he actually was only at Georgia his freshman year. So, I mean, he he and he redshirted. He didn't play more than four games, so he still has four years. So that's practically like a, getting another freshman recruit, even though it's a transfer, right? He is a big, big boy, though, and um, clearly needs some development before he's going to be ready to uh, contribute on the field on a regular basis. I, I, I would be pleasantly surprised if he is capable of helping us this year. Uh, uh, that would speak both to the fact that we really are weak at the offensive line position, and it would also speak to uh, the fact that that guy maybe was better than we thought he was, right? That, that some combination of those two things might be in play. Uh, but he is going to be an important cog in our, in our future, for sure. Right. And uh, another aspect, of course, to the recruiting and transfer portal is uh, the players on the current team uh, that maybe chose to transfer or go to the NFL or various things like that. Um, And I know we've had, you know, which is no surprise given both the disappointing seasons under Frost and then the unfortunate end of things with uh, Mickey Joseph. You know, I was bracing for quite a few players uh, to leave the team. Um, and we did have some that like could have stuck around that we would have liked to hang on to for sure that did leave. Um, so what's your evaluation there? Well, there, there are a few guys, especially on defense, that left that, that if had they chosen to stay, um, would have uh, definitely made us better, right? Guys like Garrett Nelson and, uh, um, and also uh, Hausman, the, the linebacker who actually went into the portal. I mean, um, Nelson decided to declare for the NFL. I get it. You know, he had played uh, for four years, but he had a COVID year available that he could have used. He chose not to use it. I get that he wants to go uh, pursue a bigger payday uh, in the NFL. I'm not sure he will get drafted, but we'll, you know, that's yet to be determined, right? Um, and then also the other defensive end that, that came to us from TCU, whose name is immediately escaping me, which which says right there that that he, he was in, he was supposed to be a guy that would have a huge impact on Nebraska's defensive line because he was all Big 12 at TCU the previous year and he came to Nebraska and he was good but not great right and mm-hmm. and uh, did, did not even uh, remotely close to match his um, uh, his statistics is that, uh, Ochan Mathis yeah, O'Shawn Mathis. Yep, and he had another year. He had a he had a COVID year that he could have used as well, but chose to go ahead and go to the NFL. And I don't I don't begrudge either one of those guys. And I hope they are able to show themselves during their uh, pro days, and if they get to go to the uh, combine to you know show out and then uh, um, get drafted, that would be awesome. But uh, but I have a sneaky suspicion that that uh, at least one of those two, if not both of them, will end up signing as free agents with somebody. And um, it's at that point, it's probably less than a 50-50 flip of the coin that they will end up on a you know, um, g- game one roster, even as a practice player uh, uh, in the NFL. And that's, that's just the reality of it. Um, I, 
you know, that's uh, another podcast for us to discuss uh, how we need to change this process so that these players get better, uh, more honest assessment uh, advice prior to making these decisions. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and then Hausman is the big loss, right? Because he was, not only was he young, he was, I believe, he, he was playing as a freshman for us. So he'll be playing as a sophomore at the University of Michigan. Um, and uh, he uh, came on strong late in the season. He was not the starter. He was hardly getting any playing time for until after Scott Frost was fired. And then uh, once uh, we, we made the change at defensive coordinator, he, then his role dramatically increased. And by the end of the year, when we were playing Michigan late in the year, Michigan's coaches were impressed enough that somebody uh, uh, threw him a line, so to speak, and let him know that he could play at Michigan. And magically, <laughs> uh, uh, magically, uh, he goes into the portal immediately after the season's over and uh, ends up at Michigan. Right. Which, you know, we we talked about that off the podcast before, how that's now a new dynamic to the whole, you know, players and coaches coming on the field, shaking hands after the game and stuff. You know, uh, a coach from an opposing team that's got some NIL money to spend by very well kind of, you know, put that little uh, little nugget in a player's ear if they really caught their eye or whatever. You know, exactly. It's like, it's like everyone's in free agency. And it doesn't have to be a coach. In fact, it probably isn't a coach. It's probably somebody who's not a coach, but who's who's got access to the field and has the the right emblem on their chest, and is speaking on behalf of that school, but not in the role of coach. Right? Like um, it's that third party kind of thing. It's just so easy to make that happen. It's almost impossible to enforce uh, unless the players were willing to uh, immediately call out the person for who he was, get his information, and then and then burn him at the stake, basically by you know divulging all that information to your current staff. And that's the only way that would ever get uncovered. But bottom line is uh, that's part of the deal. Um, and uh, you know if we get good enough in future years, we'll be able to do that and take advantage of that too. But right now we're not we're not part of that party. Right. <laughs> We're on the outside looking in. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I haven't followed the recruiting news as closely as you have, but my general assessment is pretty similar to yours that uh, given the situation, you know, which was a crappy situation, obviously, you know, we, we came out of it pretty good, you know, got some transfer players who should be able to contribute more immediately uh, to the team to fill some holes that we had. Um, and I could see the clear, the, the effort was clear um, yep. on the part of Matt Rule and his staff. Um, however, I know there are some areas of definite concern, such as, like we mentioned, offensive and defensive line, linebackers. Um, there are some areas where we're definitely thin at that could be a, a real concern in the upcoming season. Exactly. And, and you know, I think there's something we also need to address, which obviously is being talked about by a lot of, a lot of people, this is not new news, but it's just, it, it, it's just, it's, it's a new reality for Nebraska fans. And, you know, uh, and Nebraska fans are so, so fully committed to their team that they tend to be more aware of the, the details of roster than any other program out there practically. And so we're very sensitive to the fact that right now we're going into, you know, this uh, uh, spring practice, for example, 
and, and we're at about 103 scholarships. So, so we're, we're a, a solid, you know, 17, 18 players over the max. If you project to next August, you know, start of practice. Right. So that means there's going to have to be a good 15 guys that self delete, right. As a, uh, through the process of, uh, uh, this, uh, winter conditioning and then spring practice by the time spring practice is over and they have their one-on-one meetings with each of the players, uh, a number of those players are, are going to be told in no uncertain terms that their, uh, position on the team is, is not where they would like it to be. And their likelihood for playing time is X and, uh, you know, we'll help you with other options, right? <clears throat> that has to happen so we can get to our 85. And in fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if not only do we lose those that many players, we're going to lose even more because we're going to lose some that we wish we didn't lose, right? We're going to lose some, some guys that we were counting on to be depth, but by, by the experience that they have during spring practice and such, some of those guys might make, make the decision that this is no longer the program for me and they're going to go out. And so we'll end up being below that number again, which will open the door for maybe the second window of, of uh, the transfer portal for us to go out and get maybe another shot at some linemen offense or defense. Right. Yeah. I was going to bring that up as well because the 85 scholarship limit is something we've got to pay attention to. You know, it's kind of another one of those realities of football, right? You know, where Alabama, you know, over recruits, you know, has a high number and then somehow magically they're at 85, you know, by the required date. Right. You know, and right. that might be through, you know, medical leave situations. And, you know, th- there's all sorts of ways you can figure out how to do that. And it it uh, it kind of upsets the college football purists in me. But at the same time, if, you know, the SEC is doing it, then the Big Ten's got to do it, too, to some extent, at least, you know, to stay competitive. Right. It, exactly. And well, and there are uh, it, it gets so complicated because of some of the rules that exist that are both NCA rules and then other rules that are unique to each conference, right? And, and I really don't know. I, I, in fact, one of the things I'm trying to get to the bottom of is the very specifics of the rule for a four-year scholarship. And that, again, is something that maybe we can talk about on a future podcast. But bottom line is, is that in the Big Ten, if you offer a kid a scholarship right out of the gate as a freshman coming into the program, those kids are guaranteed a four-year scholarship. It's my understanding. Okay, so you cannot take a scholarship away from now. They can choose to leave on their own choice, but you cannot. It's not a year by year scholarship the way it used to be. It's a four year commitment. Okay, Mm -hmm. but uh, but there are other things you can do. You can present to the student athlete that, hey, based on where you are on this depth chart, you're not going to see the field for us. Okay, and if and if your desire is to play Division one football you know, on Saturdays in the fall, then we want to help you find a place where you can do that. And it's not here right now. now I'm not saying I'm going to take away the scholarship. I'm not renewing your scholarship, but I'm basically telling you, you're not going to play. And so you have two choices. Then if, if you know, you're not going to play, you could opt to take a, a medical hardship, right. Uh, and come up with the scenario for that and then stay at school, get your degree because you have a girlfriend or it's your home, state university and you want to graduate from university of nebraska or you can transfer get into the portal and see what where you can find another a better place right 
Right. So, so those are the options that those kids are going to have available to them. But at the end of the day, some way, Nebraska needs to get down to that number. I'm very confident it'll happen. There are also some things that because Matt Rule is a first-year coach, they have special rules for first-year coaches that, that help them with this process, which is why Matt wasn't concerned at all as he continued to pile up more and more new scholarships. And I'm just really impressed. I mean, you look at it, it's real clear he has a vision of the kind of player he wants, and he's willing to go after it. And he is completely comfortable going after, in the portal, guys who are, were very highly regarded in uh, coming out of high school, but for whatever reason didn't mesh with their current school. He's willing to give those guys the opportunity to kind of get a restart. And that's true in the case of this class, guys like Eric Gilbert and MJ Sherman, both from Georgia and both highly regarded players who haven't seen much playing time at Georgia because they're so stacked with talent, but that now have the opportunity to come and push the reset button and play at Nebraska. And if they commit and really invest in the program, by golly, they could uh, do some great things. Right. But then also you look at some of the scholarships that he gave out to high school kids uh, like Bryce Turner and, and uh, a couple of kids from uh, uh, one of our coaches, uh, Wager. He, he was a high school coach in Texas. Some guys from his high school that weren't getting any attention, didn't even have a, a rival's uh, profile <laughs> until we gave them a scholarship offer. And the next thing you know, you're watching their film and you're like, how did these guys not get recruited? You look at the film and it's like, my God. And the answer is, well, they only had one year and it was their senior year. They didn't play football before their senior year. Right. So Matt Rule really embraced and was excited about the opportunity to evaluate and, and recruit seniors using their senior film. Because most of this recruiting happens in the years prior to someone's senior year of high school. You know, they've usually slotted guys on their target list uh, as a coaching staff. They've set their targets uh, based on, you know, sophomore and freshman year uh, and junior year. Right. Which is pretty wild because there have been so many cases, right, where uh, a kid gets injured in their senior season, right? And then they're never quite maybe the same as they were before or the opposite, you know, have a great senior season, you know. And uh, schools have already kind of used up a lot of their commitments, you know, to other younger players or whatever. So it's a weird situation yep. there. It, well, it is. It's it, you're 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 rolling the dice that you're always going to be able to find uh, a few of those late late bloomers, right? Um, and so, uh, and I, I get the sense that Coach Rule uh, uh, almost relishes uh, his ability to identify those late late bloomers and then make them into great players, right? Uh, and, and so we need to get comfortable. Let's talk, uh, generally recruiting, uh, within the big 10, you know, uh, I would say the consensus is that, um, you know, we, we signed a top 30 class, some, some, uh, experts or organizations, uh, would have said that we, um, signed a class that was 20 top 25, you know, 24, 25, Others, it was around 30, right? Uh, but the, the consensus is top 30. Right. Similarly, uh, within the Big Ten, I think the consensus is we were fifth. A few even had us as high as fourth among all the Big Ten teams. Now, if we can consistently be a team that falls into that range, 
okay, where we're consistently the fifth best team in the Big Ten, then that would be in pretty good company, right? Because there's a couple of teams ahead of us in that list, Ohio State, Michigan, that are always going to be there. Penn State is almost always going to be there. Uh, so there's three. So the only guy, the only school that we didn't beat out that we would have liked to have beat, beat out and realistically uh, was Michigan State. They were uh, on some of the consensus stuff identified as the, as the uh, fourth best team uh, in the recruiting group. Now, we were buoyed by the fact that our, our class was quite large. 28 is a huge number. Right. Um, uh, and Michigan State's, I think, was not even 20. Like they were 19 or 18 or something. So they had a relatively small number class, but they had, you know, eight or nine four-star consensus, four-star players out of their group, which is why they ranked higher than us. Right. right. So there's, there's a lot of value placed on the quality of the individual player, not just the numbers. Right. Well, I, I didn't click on the link, but I saw a headline on Husker Max while I was doing some research was that it was some sort of website or poll saying that Nebraska was one of the uh, basically worst performing teams for our recruiting ranking, you know, yes. that, uh, you know, because under Scott Frost, right, we were never, you know, top 15, top 10 type recruiting, but he, you know, he, we would get around that, you know, 25-ish range, right, in a terms absolutely. of recruiting classes. And then, you know, you just wouldn't see the the performance on the field um, right. or, or you'd see it individually, but not as a cohesive whole. Right. So it's great that we're talking about all the importance of recruiting and where we stack up with all these other teams. But at the end of the day, what matters is what those coaches are able to get the team to execute as a whole on the field. You know, and that's yeah. what we're hoping that Matt Rule will be better at than Riley right. or Frost or the guys we've had recently. Right. No, exactly right. In, in this case, you're, you hit it right on, Alex. Um, Scott did a pretty good job of recruiting based on paper, based on rankings and that sort of stuff. But uh, he didn't do a very good job of developing players. He did a terrible job of retention, especially of his top, most highly recruited players. Some of our most highly ranked players in the Scott Frost era never saw the field before they left, right? Like either they came, they spent their freshman year here and then left because they didn't play or they never even made it to their freshman year. Some of them left even before that. So uh, from a recruiting standpoint, uh, overall, it, it, uh, the, it's a much more complicated than just what were the rankings? What was the character of the kids? You know, Scott took some flyers on, on some guys that had questionable issues and those some of those came up you know, um, Maurice Washington comes to mind uh, as an example of a guy who was um, mercurial in terms of talent, but just did not have the, you know, uh, uh, mental and emotional maturity to, uh, to be successful in the, in the environment of a major Division I sports program, right? He just did not have that, and he wasn't ready for it, and, and it, he kind of spun out of control. So... Uh, you need to have all those things brought together. And I feel like that's where, you know, this larger staff that Matt Rule has assembled uh, within his organization to help with that, to, to do more of that background analysis, to understand these individual players and, and the targets, and to figure out how to draw that stuff out of the player through the recruiting process, through the visit, all those kinds of things to kind of arrive at, okay, is this the right guy for us? Is he a fit for what we're trying to, 
to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I think I've already seen enough to, that leads me to believe that Matt Rule is certainly taking a far more professional approach to this than any of our previous coaches did. I mean, uh, going back three, Bo Pelini hated to recruit, and it was it was a pain in his butt, and it was just something he had to do. So he never put the kind of focus on it. Um, Mike Riley was just a nice, good old boy guy, and he would go after whoever the ranking services ranked high, and he'd go after them. And, and I think there were some promises given to some of those athletes that were never fulfilled. And then Scott Frost, I feel like, continued that kind of approach of, of throwing out some promises that they did not fulfill. So these kids came on campus thinking they were being guaranteed something that, that wasn't going to be guaranteed. And then when that became apparent, they were out the door, especially now that there's a portal. Right. Yeah, no, that I can definitely see that uh, analysis there for our past coaches. So let's hope that uh, Matt Rule is steering the ship in a better direction. Um, switching now to some national topics. Obviously, there's been plenty going on in the world of college football. Um, one big one is that uh, Texas and Oklahoma reached a decision with the various TV partners and everything uh, that they will accelerate uh, their leaving of the Big 12 uh, to 2024 instead of 2025. Uh, it looked like that was kind of dead in the water for a while, but I think they, uh, they managed to get Fox to get on board with that. Right. And, and, and maybe we'll, we'll hear what the specifics were that kind of got Fox to, to sign on the dotted line. But more than likely, all we'll hear is rumor about what that was. Uh, we'll never know the real truth right. about uh, what the holdup was. But uh, I'm sure it had something to do with money. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of money, uh, last podcast, we talked about the persistent rumors that uh, Jim Harbaugh at Michigan was going to go to the uh, NFL that another team was interested in him. That's kind of died down again. You know, he says, no, I'm going to stay here at, at Michigan. Um, but you know, it's just a perennial thing that pops up with him. It is. And, and it's, it's hard to understand. I think he was trying to send a, a signal to the Michigan, um, administration that, uh, he wanted his contract renegotiated. And uh, so, um, you know, if I'm if I'm to believe, you know, all the the reports that came out, it, it was very clear that that he he ag- aggressively and initiated the conversations with the Carolina Panthers. He had a phone interview with them. He had a phone interview and an, a physical interview with the Denver Broncos. I mean, he was actively pursuing these NFL coaching jobs. And so there might be a genuine interest on his part to get back into the NFL game. He was obviously very successful at, uh, when he was an NFL coach, and it's why NFL teams still are interested in him. But ultimately, um, uh, I think the, the real objective was that he would get his administration at Michigan to step up. And it was pretty clear to me that uh, maybe there's a little bit of tension between the athletic director uh, at Michigan and Jim Harbaugh, they did not communicate much, and uh, uh, Michigan now has a a much more proactive, pro uh, I mean, sports folk uh, uh, aware president now that they didn't used to have. Right, he's a new president, and so he literally got on the phone with Jim directly, and he and Jim negotiated uh, a contract extension, and then he called his athletic director and said, this is what you're going to do for Jim. So Interesting. Uh, I, I hope, 
I hope that that athletic director has uh, his resume up to date because I get the sense that maybe uh, he's walking on thin ice. <laughs> Sounds like it. Out in the out out in the middle of Lake Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, frozen Lake Michigan. Exactly. Um, another uh, interesting switch to the NFL. Um, Alabama's offensive corner Bill O'Brien uh, went to the Patriots, um, which I believe he was there previously, so it wasn't a surprising move from him per se. Um, and then Nick Saban went out and hired uh, Notre Dame's offensive coordinator, Tommy Reese. Uh, what's interesting to me about that is that uh, Tommy is only 30 years old. He's like one year older than me. Uh, so that's a you know pretty young guy to have as the offensive coordinator of Alabama. Yep. Well, and 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 again, I I, I think it uh, there is a trend both at the collegiate level and at the NFL level to go younger, right? If you start looking at uh, you know the old head coach is even a thing of the past in the NFL. You look around and all of a sudden a lot of the the head coaches that are most popular that are being desired. You know, the head coach the Philadelphia, you know, guys like that, um, our own Zach Taylor at, at the Bengals. I mean, these guys are young. Zach isn't even 40 yet. Uh, and he's, you know, this is his, like his fourth year. So I think he must've been in his mid thirties or early thirties when he initially got his job. Uh, you know, he might've been 34, Alex. So four years older than you. And he was the head coach of an NFL franchise. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so the, the going young, because of their energy level, because of their work ethic, all that sort of stuff, that is that is a thing now, right? And that's where Matt Rule obviously took that, that same approach with what he did building his staff. Uh, and I think Nick was looking for somebody that might have loyalty a little longer. I mean, the thing with Nick Saban, in, and it really enhances his legacy, if you will, is that he has been an absolute turnstile of, of coaches. I mean, yep. he has been you know, the rehab center, as they called it, the <laughs> yeah. Alabama coaching rehabilitation center where he has rehabbed so many coaches. Well, I think, I think he may have decided after this year where he came up short, you know, in his bid to play in the national championship, uh, final four, um, that, that he's, uh, going to take a different approach than what he's been doing. Uh, and he went out there and got himself a, a young coordinator that he, I think he's probably hopeful will be with him for a few years, right? So he's not having to do this every damn year. Right. Though that's the whole thing, right? If you have success at Alabama for a few years, you win a national championship or two, then you're getting offered head coaching jobs, NFL jobs, right? So that's why yep. he has the turnstile. It's a, it's a suffering from success, you could call it. Right. But but even when, even when they don't have success uh, or the success that they want, um, you know, those guys are still looking, right? Because Nick's probably not an easy guy to work for, you know, uh, much again, like I hope Matt Rule is, we're going to probably see that kind of turnover at, uh, and, uh, and Matt's staff as well, because he's highly, highly demanding. And so is Nick Saban. Now, his defensive coordinator also is new. So he had to replace a ton of, uh, of coaches this year, Nick Saban did. And I don't remember the details on his defensive coordinator, how young he was, but um, that's just the nature of Saban's staff, it seems, every year. Oh, I think he might have gotten um, Kevin Steele. Yep, he who did. Who is a past, past Nebraska assistant. He, he coached under 
Tom Osborne became a head coach, was not successful. Um, and, um, uh, went back to being a coordinator. I think was a coordinator in the NFL for a while. Um, and then, you know, he bounced around. He literally had a new job every year or two. This Kevin Steele did. And he's a great recruiter. He's a dynamic guy. He, he was, he was at Miami. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, um, and so now he's, now he's older though. I mean, he's going to be at the end of his career. So he's the opposite of the offensive coordinator. Well, there you go. Another interesting piece of news. Um, obviously the PAC 12 is losing USC and UCLA to, um, over to the big 10 coming up here. Um, and so they've been looking for other teams to fill that void. And the heavy rumor right now is that, uh, San Diego state university and Southern Methodist university are soon going to be announced to be joining, uh, apparently like the president of SDSU or the flight director even said so at like a event recently. Um, so they're not being super secretive about it. Um, which are, you know, like, you know, they're like solid, solid choices, but, you know, can't fill the gaping hole that USC and UCLA are going to leave. Um, so I would say that even if that does come to pass, the Pac-12 is still looking like the weakest conference right now in terms of the realignment talks. And I know they're still trying to negotiate a new uh, media deal. Um, so this realignment is probably part of that conversation. Right. Well, and the, and the the Big Twelve is certainly making plenty of noise on the front of expansion and saying it's not a question of if but when uh, in terms of their growth. The uh, you know San Diego State is uh, to me makes some logical sense to the Pac-12. The SMU thing makes no sense at all, with the exception of one thing: uh, getting a program like SMU gets your foot in the door in Texas. And so maybe you can negotiate with your TV partners a little bit stronger because you have a foothold in the state of Texas. But the reality is that the TV partners are going to know, well, this is what, this is what SMU really brings to the table. This is the, this is the audience that they bring to the table when they're good. You know, that's the best case scenario that I can expect from an F SMU audience. Right. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's, that's the challenge for all of these conferences, including the, the big boys, Big Ten and the SEC, is when you expand, what are you gaining? If you're not gaining uh, enough so that when you go to slice that pie by one more slice, you can you know, be generating that amount of money and more, then why add somebody, right? So there, there's got to be more involved, right? There, there's more reasons than just the just the football uh, and television revenue money. Right. Well, and I saw it's also, uh, you know, just about number of games, right? Because if you have, you know, 12 teams playing each other versus yep. 10, you know, right. that's significantly less just televised games in general. Right. That's less product for your TV partners. But again, it's what are you getting paid per game? Right. It, you know, if you're adding 12 more games because you added an additional team and you, that team, team is going to play 12 games, well, those 12 games have got to generate enough audience and enough ad revenue to justify whatever they're going to pay. And if that number doesn't rise to the level of whatever your current average is, then you're just, you know, watering down your product. Right. Right. Well, and I think, I think at this point, aside from the golden goose of Notre Dame, of course, um, 
there really aren't any other you know prominent teams that would really make waves uh, for these conferences to kind of poach into their leagues, which is why there's been a lot of poaching from within the leagues, right? Like Texas, Oklahoma, USC, UCLA, right, coming from the heart of the other Power Five conferences, and so I think the the there's kind of a bit of an air of stalemate at the moment, but it's like, when's the next big move going to happen? And will that that be the thing that causes the PAC 12 or the big 12 to potentially completely fall apart, you know, and then it becomes this whole super conference thing. Right. Well, and, and, and the thing is, I don't think the big 10 or the sec necessarily have big uh, aspirations to just go to 20 or 24 just for the heck of it. Right. If they're going to do that, they're going to do it for strategic, academic, and athletic reasons, right? And so, you know, there's there's certainly still a lot of discussion out there for the Big Ten with regard to Washington and Oregon. I think uh, the previous uh, commissioner, Commissioner Warren, who's no longer with us now, oh, and yes, has, you know, moved on to sh- the Chicago Bears. You know, I think he had uh, some genuine interest in expanding to 18 or 20 right like that that oregon and and washington were were on his radar um but the big kicker of course was you know what is notre dame going to do and and that sort of stuff and and so i that's all still kind of in play but the only thing that makes that work is for example if they were at 16 now if we could get notre dame to say hey we'll we'll come to the table and talk with you guys if we can be assured that we're going to get Stanford as a, as a partner with us in joining the big 10. And then you get Oregon and Washington and there's your four. And now, now you've got the big kahuna Notre Dame that you want. And you've got these three AAU academic institutions, Stanford, Oregon and Washington. And we bring all them and their large, Pac-12 fan bases into the Big Ten, that's a fit. That expands and makes that a more natural West Coast all the way to East Coast, you know, football conference. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that does make sense. And I didn't have this written down in my national news, but that is a big uh, piece of news that has happened since we last did a podcast was that Kevin Warren, like you say, left the Big Ten. Um, There were already rumors about that at the time, which we did discuss on the podcast. Um but he is officially gone now and there still uh, hasn't been an announcement of who his replacement is going to be yet. Um, right. So that'll well, be an interesting thing to look out for. It, it will be. And I, and I have a feeling whoever, whoever they hire is not going to be super uh, excited about expansion. I think that the presidents of the universities of the big 10 are now content at 16. And I, I think they're ready to settle in for a while. Right. Uh, so I, I think that the Big Ten would only expand and change if um, the uh, SEC chose to make a move. Then the Big Ten would react or respond, may potentially. Uh, uh, but right now, I, I I think that they're they're looking at all the logistics and the travel and just the the, the continued focus on the revenue uh, as uh, a distraction from their mission of being academic institutions. Huh. Yeah, we'll see. I, I, there is a part of me, though, that thinks that, you know, because the SEC, right, made the first move uh, in this kind of battle by getting mm-hmm. Texas and Oklahoma and really surprising a lot of people. 
Um, mm-hmm. And you could assume that the Big Ten was having maybe quiet talks with USC and UCLA even before that, because it wasn't too long after that that it got officially confirmed. Um, but, you know, it did, to me at least, kind of come off as the Big Ten kind of reacting to what the SEC did and then getting two big teams of their own to join uh, their conference. Um, I, I absolutely so agree. If if, you know, obviously if there's not the mood within the – Big Ten commissioners and presidents to do it, then it's not going to happen. Uh, but I would, I would want to be more proactive, I think, and try to be the one to make the splash move and not be reacting to the SEC. I, I really agree, Alex. I, again, I, I, I'm going to make the assumption they've had the conversation with Notre Dame and and did the what if scenario that hey, if we got you Stanford. Uh, would you would you be interested in joining the Big Ten as a full member, and you know walk away from your exclusive NBC contract? And oh by the way, NBC is now part of our television family, right? Because the new TV contract that the Big Ten signed includes NBC. So, so now that we've brought in Notre Dame's television partner, does that maybe is that a sign? I don't know. Right. Uh, we'll just have to we'll have to wait and see. But as you start to think about schedules, even with the addition of USC and UCLA, there's just so much at stake. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and with the you know uh, new addition of the 12 team playoff coming up in the near future, you know there's already not to mention the NIL and transfer portal stuff. There's a lot of change going on in college football already. So I can see presidents and athletic directors kind of saying, okay, let's settle down for a bit of just this new landscape for a few years before we start thinking about expanding more. Correct. The only downside for that is that, uh, you know, some of those schools like the PAC that are in the PAC 12 or, you know, the ACC that you might be interested in are, are going to lock themselves into TV contracts and, uh, you know, uh, rights, right. Their rights are going to be signed away. Uh, and that's going to be a problem. Right, right. There's an opportunity now, but then you'll have to wait, you know, another eight years or whatever for your next opportunity or pay a hefty sum to, you know, buy them out. Exactly. Whereas if they do it right now before they re-up, then uh, they could maybe get, you know, uh, Oregon and Washington without having to have some payoff obligation on the part of those those institutions. It's just a matter of, how badly do we want to go beyond the 16? And, and where, what does it gain? What does it gain us? Because right. I'm not sure it gains us more money. It would have to be for, for other reasons that have to do with longer-term vision issues or academics. Well, but if it was a big team, if it was a Notre Dame or a Clemson or an Oregon, right, something like that, wouldn't that be enough money? Yes. Uh, well, see, I don't know about Oregon, but, but I believe... I believe Notre Dame is an absolute yes, and uh, Clemson might be. Although you know, it depends. Two years from now, if if they if they if they have two more years like they had this year, I would say that's no, because they're kind of new to this game, right? right. They're not uh, they're not blue blood in the way Notre Dame is blue blood. Right, that's certainly true. So well, their longevity is still to be determined, I suppose. Well, and and, and again, it get, it ends up being. How, how loyal are, the, are those fans going to be? Are they going to continue to get those TV ratings and those eyeballs 
in streaming services and in regular broadcasts, are they going to still be there if they have a consecutive nine and four seasons? You right. know what I mean? Or something like that. Right. Yep. No, that's true. All right. Well, this has been a good podcast going over a lot of different topics of conversation. Uh, we'll definitely be doing more podcasts coming up. We've got plenty to talk about in the NIL and transfer portal world, uh, potential changes to the rules that have been proposed by some commissioners. And of course, uh, talking about the uh, Nebraska spring game that'll be happening later in April. So a lot still to look forward to in this off season. Absolutely. Yeah. And the after spring practices are done portal era timeframe is going to be a fascinating and, you know, pens and needles for Nebraska fans because they know we've got we've got to get rid of a bunch of players to get down to our 85. And people will be very anxious about that, I'm sure. Uh, but it's also going to be important to see what the nature of our 85 scholarships is going to look like by next fall. Very true. Very true. So if you out there enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can email us at huskerpeat13 at gmail.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts if you search for College Football Throwdown. We're also on Spotify if you'd prefer to listen to us there. So thank you all for listening to this episode. Thank you, Dad, for joining me for this episode. And until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. <laughs>